0: know why I'm so passionate about music to code by because it works I'm still getting a steady stream of success stories from developers just like you who sail effortlessly through hours of coding there's only one problem they can't get enough well not only are we up to track 13 but you can download them all in one shot for a new low price the collection was 54 bucks just a little while ago Still only a little more than 4 bucks a track, but now you can get all 13 for only 39 bucks. That's only 3 bucks a track. Yeah, that's more like it. 325 minutes of pure bliss. Go get it now at collection.musictocodebuy.net.
1: Net Rocks, episode 1369, with guest Aaron Gustafson. Recorded Friday, October 14th, 2016.
0: Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. We're here for some web accessibility goodness today with Aaron Gustafson. But before we talk to him, I need to talk to you, my friend. My friend! My friend. Richard Campbell. How are you? I'm just fine. We're making a
1: reference to the last time we saw Bill Cosby before all that stuff came out that made Bill Cosby no longer funny. Yeah, it's a shame. Yeah, it's really something in it. Yeah. But I remember that evening. I do. We watched it, I guess he was almost 80, doing yet a new
0: set, and it was funny. It was kind of funny. Yeah, it sure was. Yeah, little do we know. All right, enough about that. That's depressing. I've (laughs) actually got something interesting and possibly a little shady that I'm going to share with you because, you know, it's out there. Because that's what you do. Yeah. Roll the music. (laughs) All right, dude, what do you got? So, you ever been in an airport and just wanted some Wi-Fi and you just don't want to go through the hassle of watching a video or answering some questions? Or installing terrible, terrible software? Yeah, exactly. Software that doesn't work. So, somebody has put together a database of airport Wi-Fi passwords from airports around the world. Wow. Yeah. So, go to 1369.pwop.me and it's in the form of a Google Map. Of course it is. Yep. And uh, you can either just zoom into the map or just search through the 176 airports that they have there. Yeah.
1: I know half these passwords.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure you do. I'm not proud. (laughs) I'm just saying. Oh, yeah, that's right. That one's right, too. Yeah. That's really funny. So, you know, I'm not condoning that you steal Wi-Fi because that's wrong. Yeah. Don't On the other that. hand, some of the stuff that, that organizations think is acceptable to give you access to Wi-Fi is not acceptable. Totally. Yeah. Totally agreed. So, there it is. Use it at your own risk and uh, try not to break the law. Who's there talking to us, Richard? I grabbed a comment off of show 761.
1: Think about that for a minute. 761. That's from Seven. April of 2012. Did we even
0: do shows back then? <laughs>
1: <laughs> and embarrassingly, that is the last time we did an accessibility show. Oh, that is embarrassing. It is embarrassing. There's no other way to do it. I'm just going to call that out. It's like, I am aware we have not done a good enough job here. And that was uh, with uh, Jerome Hulsher. And this comment comes from Tom, who says, I really applaud Jerome's attitude towards accessibility, but unless it's mandated by law or some required corporate standard, very few companies will actually pay anyone to do it. Yeah. Accessibility seems like one of those things where accessibility tooling should do the work because 70%, and I'm just guessing here, of the content is not designed for it anyway. For example, the red versus green colorblindness argument. What's more likely is that a website is designed with colorblind people in mind or that a colorblind user has their OS set up in such a way as to differentiate between the two colors by artificially converting all reds to a shade of blue. Huh. Which is an interesting thought, right? I think the OS could do a bunch of this. I'm not sure what's possible in a given OS or browser in this regard, but if such tooling doesn't exist or isn't sophisticated enough, it should. That an accessibility vendor should focus on that rather than relying on millions of developers who aren't likely aware of accessibility issues in the first place or don't have the budgets to concern themselves. Then again, we do need to make developers aware. That it's an upward battle on so many fronts. And one we haven't done a good job of either, Tom. So that's, yeah. uh, we're glad to do another show on it. And also happy to send you a mug. So a .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you, and if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .net Rocks.com or via any of our social media, because we publish every show to Google Plus and Facebook. And if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a mug.
0: And definitely follow us on Twitter. He's at Rich Campbell. I'm at Carl Franklin. Send us a tweet. We use them as Wi-Fi password entropy. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I'm not saying I ignored your tweet I'm saying it's very entropic
0: (laughs) Because every random value has to have a seed There you go Yes
1: You too can be a seed
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right This is a serious show Yes. Let's get serious. Let's bring on our very serious guest, Aaron Gustafson. As would be expected from a former manager of the Web Standards Project, Aaron Gustafson is passionate about web standards and accessibility. He's been working on the web for two decades now and is a web standards advocate at Microsoft, working closely with their browser team. He penned the seminal book on progressive enhancement, adaptive web design, and writes about whatever's on his mind at aaron Gustafson. Dot.com. Welcome, Aaron. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. How's Chattanooga? Chattanooga is finally
2: starting to cool off. Apparently, we were uh, either the either number one or number two for
0: hottest city in the in the U.S. this summer, and that uh, was not terribly fun. Ah, uh, <sighs> and you wouldn't necessarily expect it to be so hot based on no. where it is geographically.
2: Yeah, I think, you know, we, we're we're in the southeast, yes, but we're also in the mountains and we've got a river and all that sort of stuff. And I don't know what it was about us
0: having a, a bunch of 100 plus days, but wow, not fun. No. not fun. Yeah, that gets old fast. Yep. On the coast, we get some wind. <laughs> I don't mm-hmm. know if you've heard about it.
2: <laughs> yes, I remember it well from, from being up in the northeast.
0: Yeah, we get a little wind. So, first of all, let's let's talk about progressive enhancement. What is that? So, the idea of progressive enhancement—it's it's basically
2: a, a web design philosophy, um, and it asks us to think about what is the the core experience, what is the the core content, the core tasks that a user is coming to a given web page to do, and. It, it asks us to ensure that we can provide that experience regardless of the user's situation. So regardless of the type of browser they happen to have, the device they happen to be on, the type of internet connection they have. So it's about basically respecting the user from, from the get-go.
0: So does that mean that if they're using a browser that doesn't support um, something that you use, you find another way to essentially... Not simulate, but you find another way to provide the same functionality with with the existing technology
2: yeah I mean to to give a, a simple example um, one that I, I kind of like to to go back to time and time again, consider uh, an email input field right mm. um, for what like fourteen years between the the introduction of forms in on the web and um, you know, the, the introduction of HTML five with the email input type, all we had was type equals text for email input. And then with HTML five, we all of a sudden had this type equals email. So Mm. browsers that understand type equals email can provide all sorts of additional affordances for user input. So virtual keyboard context, somebody might be able to enter an email more quickly because the at symbol is bubbled up into that keyboard scenario. Um, in browsers that implement HTML5 validation, the browser can actually do validation against that field and stop a user from submitting an improperly formatted email address. Yeah. Um, all of these sorts of things come for free, basically, with that uh, type equals email. But for browsers that don't understand type equals email, they'll fall back to an input of type text, which is what we had for years. Right. Um, and so you know, we can, as developers, look at that instruction and even if the browser doesn't implement it we can test to see if the the browser supports it or not and you know we might add additional affordances to do client side validation or something like that but you know doing that in place of the browser doing it natively Um, so Mm. but the reality is that somebody can still enter their email address even if they're using links or or something like that Um, and, and to me progressive enhancement is really about embracing a continuum of experience. So from, from the most basic experience all the way up to the, you know, the the most kind of hi fi experience. So you can, I, I kind of relate it to, uh, you know, uh, listening to a recording in mono versus listening to it in like 7.1 or yeah. whatever we're up to now in terms of channel sound, right? Right. If you can still listen to the song. It's going to be much richer, richer in a different context. Sure. Um, or potentially listening to it live in a concert hall where the acoustics are specifically designed for you to listen to that particular type of music, right?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, doesn't the adaptive design side more apply to what, let's use the old phrase, down-level browsers?
2: Um, traditionally, yes, because progressive enhancement was sort of flipping the idea of graceful degradation on its head where we assumed that older browsers were going to have a crappier experience. Right. Um, and so progressive enhancement is graceful degradation, but it's a very specialized instance of it where you're you're taking the core functionality and as as Ben Ho, a web designer in, in Australia, put it, looking for opportunities for sexiness mm. and basically improving that interface to to create a, a better um a better experience a, a experience with more affordances and such. But I would say that the the direction things are heading now um I don't necessarily think it's all about thinking about yeah. down-level browsers. I think it's thinking about the future of, of experience as well because we're moving into a space where more and more of us are beginning to interact with technology without any visual any, at all. So if you're using Siri or Alexa or Cortana or whatever, like that's, that's essentially the experience that somebody in a screen reader is having, which is similar to the experience somebody in a text-based browser is having.
0: I see less graceful degradation and more ungraceful refusal. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, there is that, right? Because, I
1: mean, since the browser switched over to the model of, I'm simply going to update you and not talk about it. It's, you
0: know, you close Chrome, you got a new version of Chrome. Yeah, well, you got to get people to use Chrome in the first place or or something else, right? I mean, it doesn't necessarily have to be Chrome. The latest version of IE does pretty well but, but that's the thing, right? I mean, you, you see more and more and, and I think these sites are moving the needle, you know, in order to use this website, you have to have a modern browser.
2: Yes, but I think there's, there's a, there's a struggle there because what they're also saying is that there is in many cases, a single experience, a a single monolithic experience. And I think that that it ignores the reality of the web. So Douglas Crockford, who's a fairly famous within the JavaScript world, once called the web the most hostile programming environment imaginable. Mm. Um, and the reality is that as developers, we don't control the execution environment of our web code. Um, you know, when we're programming something on the back end, you know, potentially using JavaScript or PHP or or no or um, Ruby or or Python or what have you. You know, we have generally a good degree of control over that server and, you know, the, the module, the packages, all of that stuff that's installed there. Um, and we have control over the server configuration. We, we, or we know what the configuration is and can tailor our development for that. And we're dealing, you know, with one or a, a series of servers in that scenario. Mm-hmm. Um, But still, we have a a much greater level of knowledge of what's going on and where our, our programs are operating. On the web, all bets are off. We don't, we don't control that. And we don't, you know, we don't control the browser our users have. We don't control the plugins that they have. We don't control the configuration that they use in their browsers. We also don't control the, the various networks that our users Used to access our content. So you, you guys brought up airport uh, Wi-Fi earlier mm-hmm. and I mean, I've had sites that have just fallen apart on airport Wi-Fi because the Wi-Fi router injects some ads or injects some JavaScript right. or something that all yeah. of a sudden causes it to break. So by going all in on JavaScript as a technology to render your site, you are basically creating this huge single point of failure potential for your site. So you're not building something that's actually going to be Robust and that's going to continue to to soldier on and allow people to do what they came to the site to do regardless of what happens so you know to give an example of this this happening in reality um Back when uh, Gawker Media, R.I.P. Um, <laughs> Gawker <laughs> Media had launched their um, their you know quote unquote new web platform back in 2011, um, they went whole hog into JavaScript, and so everything uh, every view was being loaded via JavaScript. They effectively had an app shell, and they were loading in all the content via Ajax, and uh, every page would just you know do an XHR request and and pull the new content in and stuff. And I mean, all of the Gawker sites were effectively blogs, right? So they they didn't need to to do this because it was all just straight up content but they they chose to go with this platform well when they flipped the switch to to make that site live there happened to be a bug in some of their javascript code and none of it ran. Oh. And so all everybody on every one of their sites across their entire platform got was the website wrapper and nothing else. And and in some cases they had a little, little thing, a little, uh, bug in the corner that said loading and it wasn't loading anything. And that's super frustrating. Um, super. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, that's, that's not a great experience. That's a, that's no experience for all of their users. Yeah. Um, and in a, in a similar um, scenario, not too long ago, uh, Sky Broadband in the UK actually uh, misclassified jQuery as served from the jQuery CDN as malware. And so they blocked it at, at their firewall for all <laughs> of their users who had <laughs> filtering. So, I mean, if your site was dependent on jQuery from the jQuery CDN and you didn't have a, a local fallback on your own server, your site was dead in the water.
1: Just like um, that, yeah.
2: Yeah. And, and to me, that's, you know, as, as somebody who's been developing for the web for the last 20 years, that's really offensive to me that like, you know, I I feel like that's doing a poor job of our work. You know, I love working in JavaScript, but I also recognize its fragility. Um, Sure. And the fact that it is, it's application code that's running in a space that we don't control. Um, right. You know, you can, you can harden some of this stuff. You can, you know, you could bypass the, the, the JavaScript injection and stuff like that that's happening with airport Wi Fi by going over HTTPS and, and stuff like that. And there's things that you can do to shore up certain areas. But the reality is we don't control the execution environment. And it's, it's a tough pill to swallow. But once you, kind of grapple with that, sure. you end up building much
0: more robust uh, experiences and, and websites. I'm dying to ask you this question. Are you a mm-hmm. hamburger menu guy or no hamburger or no hamburger? It depends. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> serves me right.
2: To me... Every, every site's different. I mean, every every site has its own its own unique needs. Um, I would say if you're going to use a hamburger menu, it's helpful to also have the word menu or navigation or yes. something like that tied to it. Uh, just from a, a user affordance and, and accessibility standpoint. Yes. Um, but, I mean, I think there are some scenarios where a hamburger works really well. There are some scenarios where it really doesn't.
0: I guess if your website is for developers... <laughs> Nice. <laughs> they all know what a hamburger is but if, if it's you know grandma huckabee as tim yep. likes to say uh she might not even know what to do with that little thing yeah or if somebody is using uh, assistive technology and there's no indication
2: that that actually gives them access to navigation menu or something like that right. then again you're
0: you're creating a an, an impedance do you have any numbers in terms of how many people or what percentage of web users require some sort of accessibility help? In other words, something that reads the screen, um, something that boosts the fonts or, uh, or other accessibility devices.
2: I don't have specifics on that. One of the the big challenges that we run into is there's no way within kind of the standard web stack of HTML, CSS and JavaScript of detecting a screen reader, for instance. Mm. Um, you know, there, there are certain things where we could potentially use Google analytics to check to see if people have enlarged font sizes and and stuff like that. Um, but as far as I know, nobody's done really in depth, uh, studies of that. I do have some like anecdotal information. I'm, I'm told it's, there's a surprising number of people who actually use, um, to kind of speak to your, your comment from earlier that you were reading that use the, um, the high contrast mode in windows. Um, the, uh, that actually gets used a lot more frequently than people are aware of. Um, but I think the, the thing to keep in mind when, when considering accessibility is that accessibility is a broad spectrum and, you know, consider something like, um, loss of a limb, right. Which, which might require somebody to all of a sudden be mousing with their non-dominant hand because they, they lost their other one or something like that. um, you know, that, that affects a, you know, in the U S alone, that affects a a relatively small number of people. Um, but if you then expand that special need of, you know, having potentially larger hit targets or, or something that, that works better in a, a one handed scenario, um, to people who have a temporary disability who may have broken their arm. Um, you know, they may even, you know, I've heard people who are like, oh, you know, I I made a site for people who go rock climbing, so I don't need to talk, I don't need to deal with people who have, you know, only one arm. But there are people who go rock climbing and accidentally fall and break their arms. So, mm-hmm. you know what, they, they're in that scenario temporarily. Sure. And that's a much larger portion. And then you've got people who are in a have a situational issue where maybe they're a new parent holding a newborn in one hand. So n- now you have a, a much broader group of people who are all benefiting from, you know, something that takes into account a person who only has use of one arm and, and you're up to, I think for the, the U S alone, it's somewhere like 21 million people a year. Wow. Um, so it's significant. And And the same thing, I mean, if you, if you look to, the the physical world um, curb cuts, curb cuts were created, you know, for ADA compliance in the U S in order to enable people who are in wheelchairs to easily cross the street. Um, but we all benefit from them. We, we benefit from them when, you know, maybe we're in a, a place that we only feel comfortable riding our bi- bike on the sidewalk, or mm-hmm. if we're pushing a stroller or, you know, the UPS or the FedEx guy who has to roll a big thing of packages, um, you know, we all benefit from those curb cuts, and so you know. In the same way, the more the the more consideration we make for people who have special needs when accessing the web, the more broadly accessible our uh, our content, our our services, and such become for everybody else.
1: Yeah, it's interesting that that impacts everything. Actually, just when you think about stuff that way, when you when you mark up stuff properly, that it does actually support. In some ways, moving to a smaller device, for example, where you are more constrained, and so accessibility actually becomes essential for it to work on that at all.
2: Yeah, I mean, think about contrast, for instance. I mean, you were talking about color and, and such earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, ignoring the the problems of you know somebody who's colorblind reading a, a a page about a particular shirt and reading off the shirt colors, and and maybe they don't really understand that you know this coral. Sure, you know, the coral color name is actually somewhere kind of in the peachy pinky space because they can't see that. Right. Um, but let's, let's consider just contrast. So a low contrast site, um, you know, while there might be scenarios where, you know, aesthetically a, a designer might say this is beautiful, um, from a functional standpoint, it can be problematic not only for people who have vision problems in in terms of you know um, myopia or something like that, but for people who are on their mobile device and maybe have turned down the brightness of their screen um, because they're trying to conserve battery, right. um, or who maybe are in a a really you know a, a bright area or something like that they've got a lot of glare on their screen they're going to have a hard time reading it too i mean we all i think you know when when we're talking about accessibility we need to be considering kind of this this broader idea of accessibility whereas i feel like a lot of us sort of gravitate towards this idea of web accessibility being only about people who use screen readers for instance um, that's kind of the the de facto place that we go right but really it's it's about a much broader um spectrum of, of people and special needs and a lot of them are scenario based. I mean, you, you brought up markup, um, and, you know, using good semantic markup you know not only benefits you know people who use screen readers but it'll benefit people who are using you know Alexa or Cortana or Siri or or right. people who are are searching for content on you know Google or Bing or, or what have you um you know those semantics provide additional meaning behind the content that's on the page and that makes it more accessible in the broadest sense of the the term to you know whoever is trying to consume it
1: should we contrast or compare adaptive web design to responsive web design because I kind of feel like the two things overlap
2: absolutely at least at least in my view I think there there are some people who use the term adaptive web design more in terms of just adaptive layouts and I've seen some yeah. people um, use that to only talk about specific fixed widths that you deliver to individual um, devices but I think that's a I don't know. To me, that, that doesn't make any sense to, to call that actually adaptive because it's not actually adapting to anything but those, you know, three screen sizes that you've created. Um, whereas, you know, I, I feel like responsive design, as far as Ethan Marcotte defined it as, you know, fluid grids, uh, flexible images and media queries fits directly in with this idea of, of progressive and adaptive web design, um, as a technique for visual layout of the page. Um, because it's about creating the most appropriate design experience for somebody, regardless of the size device that they happen to be using uh, and the amount of screen re- resolution they happen to have. Um, I also, in addition to, to all the other things that I do, I, I run the Chattanooga Open Device Lab. And one of the devices that we have is um, a Barnes & Noble Nook. I don't know if you guys remember oh, yeah. kind of that that device. But sure. so that, that was an Android-based um reader e-reader um but it had a browser ba- built into it which was webkit based um so it was a, it was kind of ba- based on the stock android webkit and in that device alone you've got um let's see five different font sizes um <laughs> and then it's got uh what it calls zoom levels uh which is basically like the, it's to to compensate for the distance at which you like to hold the device from your face um which kind of zooms, zooms you into the layout. Um, and then you have, um, uh, portrait and landscape. So if, if you were to create a matrix of all of the different potential ways that that page, could, you know, a single web page could be experienced on that one device, there's like a matrix of 30 different ways it could be experienced on wow. one device.
1: Wow. Indeed. So do you use the nook as a reference of like the worst case scenario for a device?
2: Um I don't know that it's necessarily a worst case scenario but it's it it gets you to think in terms of keeping your fonts scalable and keeping your layouts flexible um you know it's it's one of the reasons that I really like M um, unit based media queries so that the the media queries actually flex based on the the font size that you're applying to the page. So you're always creating the most appropriate reading experience for, for your users. Um, I think for worst case scenario stuff, that's where I like to look at like opera mini um, which tends to to have a, a subset of CSS support and uh, some pretty strict limitations on, on JavaScript support as well. Um, so it's, it's a little bit more, um, I don't know. I don't know if hostel's the right word, but it, it's it's gonna do a bit more to to kind of mess with your your con- conception of what your web page is, I guess.
1: Yeah, and it's just like the nook is I guess one of those backwaters, right? <laughs> like it, uh-huh. it they still make it. There is still a nook. They, there's, there's just the, the glow light version, but mm-hmm. it is interesting, you know, there's especially in the Android space, just so many devices. Like it's yeah. it's gotta be really tough.
2: Yeah. And I mean, even, even like the, the Kindle 3, um, which at this point is a fairly old e-reader. It's, it's still e-ink based, uh, doesn't have the, the backlight and all that stuff. Um, but it had a WebKit browser built into it and it, it even supported CSS based transitions and stuff. But mm-hmm. I mean, the transitions were done via e-ink refreshes, but it was still a, uh, a valid, um, browser. You know that that was worth testing it, and it's it's particularly interesting because that generation of uh, Amazon devices included Whispernet, which gave you global three G access
1: right. to yeah. the
2: web yeah. using that browser. So I know I know a couple people that actually take that, even though it's an older device, they take it with them when they travel around the world because they have free access to the web on that device.
0: Yep, and it's interesting. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is now? Uh, I must be that happy time again. Yeah. It's time to replace the brightness knob on my joke database. (laughs) I think it's broken. Yeah, And most brightness knobs are. (laughs) I try to turn up the brightness, but it don't work. It don't work that way. It's actually time to give away a music to code by Complete Collection to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. Music to Code By is a set of 25-minute, pomodoro-sized, quiet, and groovy instrumentals scientifically designed to promote focus. It'll get you into a state of flow and keep you there. .NET Rock's fans are being more productive with Music to Code By, so see what all the fuss is about. Now you can download the entire 13-track collection for only 39 bucks. Check it out at musictocodeby.net. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner is Tushar Mejare. Congratulations, Tushar. Golf clap, And Tushar just won the Music to Code by Complete Collection. That's a big pile of awesome. And uh, if you don't know what we're doing here, go to com. click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .net Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world, and every show we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December we're giving away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the dot net rocks fan club but you got to sign up to win aaron it's your turn if you had five thousand dollars to spend right now on technology what would you buy
2: oh man that's a good question i'd probably start with that uh that awesome uh microphone
1: sleeve that you were oh, showing the chaotica eyeball yeah, yeah. We, were, we were talking about audio echo which you may hear in this show yeah. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, oh, you know what? The Kayaka eyeball. I think I might try
0: that. I don't know. You could always do what I did and build a recording studio. Yeah. For five grand, you could almost get a booth. <laughs> that's yep. true. Actually, you could get a booth for five grand. Yeah. Uh, soundsuckers.com. That's where we got our booths. There you go. Sweet.
1: Yeah. Sold.
0: Yeah. <laughs> uh, you,
1: you do have to talk to, you know, whomever you're sharing your home with about, see this large black thing? It's <laughs> going <laughs> to live here now. Right.
2: That's what basements are for.
1: Yeah, that's it. Yeah. It's a very basement-y thing. Yeah.
0: Down in the basement with you.
1: Nice. I I never did put in a booth, but I've ended up doing sound treatments in my office, so. Yeah. Now I'm pretty much there. Although chaotic eyeball. Yeah. Only 200 bucks. Pretty good stuff. Yeah. And I know this is not a paid-for plug. I'm on the opposite. I paid for mine. (laughs) Uh,
0: Aaron, are there any hard and fast rules for um, making your site- Friendly to those who are colorblind um, I mean there are a
2: lot of uh, of good testing tools. I think you know contrast is a is a really important um, kind of thing to to think about because that definitely helps. Um, I mean in in terms of tooling, there's plugins for for a lot of browsers that will uh, simulate. The the various problems that people have with red green or blue yellow yeah. or, or what have you color blindness. There's even some um, you know desktop apps that will do the same thing uh, and apply it for your overall uh, operating system, which is kind of interesting. Um, yeah. I find in a lot of cases that simply taking um, taking the screen and Effectively removing all color, basically going to grayscale hmm. can help a lot with just determining, is there enough contrast between these elements? Right. Um, and then when you're thinking about, um, you know, when you're when you're designing a page or when you're building a chart or, or whatever it is, um, thinking not only in terms of, of color as being a representative of something, but to look for opportunities to include iconography that that is you know straightforward and and obvious so if you're if you're if you've got an okay and a cancel button having a check mark next to the okay one and an x
0: next to the cancel one could be an additional visual indicator the borland Uh, button yeah yeah (laughs) you don't you might not know what i'm talking about but in uh borland c versions of C and their their runtime library that that they were famous for that they had an okay button that had a green check on it and a, a cancel button that had a red x on it
2: yeah, and if you had red green color blindness, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference between the color. So therefore, the the check mark and the X become additional affordances. Right. Um, I mean, and the same thing goes if you're if you're creating a you know like, let's say a line graph for instance, um, having different patterns um, in addition to different colors can help somebody who is colorblind to visually differentiate between um, the the lines
0: on that chart. Is there such a thing as not being able to differentiate small shapes? Such as a a triangle for play and a and a rectangle for stop or a square for stop,
2: right? Certainly, depending on the size and and your level of um, you know if you've if you've got myopic vision or or degrading vision, um, that can become a challenge. And mm-hmm. you know a, a good. You know, just a, a lo-fi way to test for that is the squint test. Just start to, to squint your eyes more and more until things start to blur out. And if, if you across the board can, can see something and understand something as being play and pause or, or what have you, um, then you're probably good. Um, there are also tools, uh, for browsers that will do the same sort of thing for you, um, that, that will allow you to adjust the, the level of blur of the overall page. Certainly you could, uh, you could have, um, you know, a CSS filter that you drop on the entire page or something like that, and a user style sheet to do the same thing. Um, so I, those are generally good ways to, to be able to test for, you know, is, this, uh, is there a perceivable difference between these um, in
0: low vision scenarios? Do you have a list of criteria? Are you ever asked to rate a website to give it a, a score?
2: Not terribly often. A lot of times when people approach me for, for help with this accessibility, it's, you know, do, you know, can you come in and, and tell us where we've got, you know, what we're doing well, where we're having issues, where, you know, what sorts of fixes we could do to improve things, um, and it's not really, I don't know, I I don't get a lot out of out of scoring unless it's yeah. just, you know, competition type stuff where right. you know, like right now we've got the the 10K apart uh, competition going on. And so we're we're in the judging phase of that. And so yeah, we have we have some scoring going on just to be able to to determine winners. But generally I'm I'm not a huge fan of, oh, the site scores a seven or the site scores a ten a in terms of accessibility. Um one thing that actually that that kind of reminded me of is I think that there's you know once you become aware of accessibility as a consideration it is also possible to go too far in the other direction of trying to create mm. a exact parity between two experiences mm-hmm. so um, i was working with a client and they had on their their marketing site this was an investment company on their marketing site, they were touting how their, uh, prices or, or their, their transaction fees were lower than their competition. And, you know, you, they basically gave you a chart that would show, you know, how much you would save over the other guys in the long term of investing with them. Um, and you could basically adjust a slider to, to indicate your initial investment with them. Um, and so, yeah, you know, this was you know a slightly rich chart where you could you know slide the slider and it would adjust the the chart dynamically, and so they wanted to provide the same sort of experience for people who might be using screen reader, um or might be using a keyboard, mm. uh, because they're not necessarily um you know one in the one in the same. You can you can have power users that are using the keyboard but are are sighted as well, um so they actually made it so that. You know, the slider had, I think it was in in $5,000 increments from like $5,000 up to $2 million. Um, and so they made each one of those a stop on the keyboard, mm. um, going right and left. And so, you know, from a, a user standpoint, that can be extremely frustrating, especially since it's it's a marketing page. It's just trying to, to convey right. a sense of how much you would be saving. And so, you know, I, I talked to them about that and I, I applauded them for their interest and, and desire to provide a, a great and comparable experience for people who are using, um, you know, alternate browsing methods. Um, but at the same time i I talked to them about considering the spirit of the interface and and what it is that you're trying to achieve and and so I, I said you know in in certain instances, you know would it make sense just to like could the copy be enough to carry that for instance yeah or alternately you know the copy in a static image, and then with javascript you you make this you know potentially inaccessible slider enhancement thing um and that's okay because somebody who's using a keyboard can have the content read to them and then just skip over that um or alternately if you do want to provide that same sort of experience to to somebody who's using a, a keyboard what if you gave them five stops along that investment uh curve as opposed to you know i don't know 200 or something like that whatever it was um so that it's not a frustrating experience yeah. if they, they move into that interface. And so I think there's there's a lot of, you know, as I said earlier, uh, you know, it depends. Like the, the solutions that we choose, we need right. to make sure that, you know, yes, they are accessible. But we also want to make sure that we're not going too far towards creating identical parity.
0: Well, let's look at a website that a lot of us use, uh, Facebook. Mm-hmm. Do you have any critiques of Facebook in terms of accessibility?
2: I mean, I, I think that there's a lot going on. (laughs) Uh, I I think kind of, you know, part and parcel, we were talking a little bit about responsive design in the the context of, of adaptive web design and progressive enhancement. Mm. When you, when you follow responsive web design from the mobile first perspective, that's when I feel like it aligns best with progressive enhancement, because it's about starting with that core experience. Um, that's very streamlined and, and tailored towards accomplishing whatever the, the key task is yeah. on that page. And then, you know, you're, you're providing a, enhancements to that experience as you have more screen real estate available to you. But I feel like there's, there's always this signal versus noise tension, right? And I feel like certainly the desktop view of Facebook is very noisy. You know, that to me from an accessibility is concerning, but even on a busy page, you can provide, um, affordances for users to be able to, you know, let's say quickly navigate, um, the document or, or what have you. Mm-hmm. Um, so I actually haven't, haven't actually looked at, uh, the content of Facebook before, cause it's, there's so much going on. There's so much yeah. JavaScript and stuff like that. Um, but if I take a look here, let's see if they've got some roles. So um, in ARIA, you have this concept of landmark roles. ARIA is the Accessible Rich Internet Applications spec, okay. um, which the idea of that was basically to map um, accessibility concepts from the OS level to the web. And so using ARIA landmarks, we can actually indicate um, Portions of the page that are um, that are acting as particular things so the banner for the site, um, for instance, which is where you would find out, you know, what the name of the site is and stuff like that or content info is kind of the the meta information about the site, which would be copyright, there's a role of navigation Um and because aria and html5 were being very much developed in in parallel they sought to solve a lot of the same problems so there you will see some redundancies between say the nav element and navigation as a role mm. um and and there is mapping from the HTML5 elements to those ARIA roles. Um, So the main element, which is a relatively recent introduction, I think that was in uh, HTML 5.1, that maps directly to the main role in uh, ARIA and so that indicates the primary content for the page um just like the aside element or the role of complementary indicates information that is you know ancillary but but you know goes alongside uh the the main content of the page so using those uh, aria roles which are simply html attributes we can provide quick access to people who are using assistive technologies to be able to um Get to certain portions of the page and, and these could become useful in headless ui scenarios where people are, are browsing via a digital assistant mm. um, because that's that's assistive technology too assistant assistive um you know so Maybe eventually we'll be able to, you know, ask ask Cortana to to you know read something from a page uh, for us, or or ask Alexa or ask Siri or what have you. And you know, maybe we well we're on that page. We could say, hey, you know, what's the navigation on this page? And then it would be able to use that to infer what the navigation is on the page and read that to us.
0: I'm really surprised that that functionality isn't there. I mean that sort of would complete the 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 um the dream of having a a digital assistant to just be able to look things up and and quote unquote read what they say you know even if it was a, a Cortana or a Siri interface to something like Wikipedia where you could just get some basic facts but.
2: Yeah. I mean, they do, they do pull out some of that information. Wikipedia is definitely a data source that I know, I know for sure Cortana uses, um, and, and Google uses it as well in, in Google search results. Um, so, I mean, they're, they're starting to use that. I think, you know, as we as, as web developers use more of these, uh, these markup conventions, they start to become more widely usable. It was the same thing with, um, microformats with, um, you know, schema.org, that sort of stuff, the more you know, semantic richness we apply to our documents, the more useful they become in a, in a wider variety of scenarios. And to, to answer your question about Facebook, they do use ARIA roles kind of all over the place. They have them not only for landmarks, they have them for various um, interfaces. There are a lot of what are called widget roles um, within ARIA that define things like combo boxes and, and mm-hmm. alerts and, and stuff like that. Um, and ARIA even allows us to define, you know, what's, what's happening, what
0: is the state of an interface. Um, those sorts of things. So, so, that's something that we should be doing is looking at something like ARIA and absolutely. implementing its roles. And that does what exactly? I mean, I know you said it, but does that just allow another level of interface to accessibility interfaces?
2: Yeah, I mean, it it, it makes the document more semantic, which then opens it up to being, you know, programmatically traversed or, um, or interacted with. So, I mean... You can use ARIA roles and, you know, yes, that opens up opportunities for people who are using assistive technology. It also opens up opportunities for crawlers. It opens up opportunities for you to use those as as hooks for your CSS or for your JavaScript as well. It allows
0: people to steal my content. Get yeah. off my yep. lawn.
2: <laughs> exactly. Well, I mean, it, it's funny you mentioned that because that, that's actually how, you know, uh, it's how readability used to, to pull stuff. And yeah. um, I believe that Instapaper and a lot of the other tools that are out there, they're, they're using the semantic markup in order to be able to determine, you know, what is the primary content that I should be extracting from this page? Or if you're in a reader view of a, a web page, same thing.
1: I uh I pulled the list of web accessibility tools from the W3C Web Accessibility Initiative. It's a lot of tools. Holy cow.
2: Yeah, there's a lot of them out there. I mean, I I would say, you know, for a lot of people who aren't necessarily you know, super accessibility aware, um, some of it may be overkill. I mean, I think they're, you know, thinking about the semantics of your document. If you're somebody who uses, uh, grunt or gulp or any sort of, uh, sort of task runner, um, there are some, you know, very, very baseline accessibility tools that can scan your generated HTML pages and look for, uh, potential issues. And, and that's how you can catch a lot of the low hanging fruit, um, But I mean, there's, there's a lot that you can do to make a baseline accessible web experience for people. And it it comes down to, you Mm -hmm. know, thinking about. You know the alt text that we're using for images or whether even to include alt text I mean you always you always need to have that alt attribute but you may want to leave it empty in which case a, a screen reader or assistive technology will just skip over that image and it won't read out any information about it if you don't include the alt attribute it'll read the image name, which is not terribly helpful for people yeah. um, so thinking about about that sort of stuff, considering how your content reads the the source order is actually. Pretty important, um, especially as we start to move into the the future of, of voice based interactions. Um, you know, I, I think those sorts of basic considerations will pay huge dividends. And then it's it's all about you know layering on you know additional HTML, additional ARIA, CSS, JavaScript, and just you know, being cognizant of the the changes that those make to the document, and make sure that you're not undermining the accessibility of the document with any of those um, enhancements.
1: What's interesting is I think about what Thomas said in his comment. Uh, about, you know, can the OS and so forth do it? And a lot of what you're describing is us putting hints into our pages so that those tools will work more effectively. That it is a combination of those two things. Yes, Absolutely. the OS and the browser will do it, but only if you make it clear what it should do.
2: I mean, they'll do it, but you if you... Just allow them to do it kind of blindly. You you relinquish control over what that experience is. Right. If you want to have more control over that experience, let's say for instance, um, the the high contrast mode in Windows in the the latest version of Edge, you actually have the ability to to control more of how content is, is, you know, knocked out in older versions, for instance, if you had text against an image, um, you know, the the background image might not be shown, whereas now, you know, the background image can be shown, but they, they strip in, you know, a, a solid color behind the text and you can control that stuff and you can kind of tailor that experience to be better than, you know, what you get out of the box. And, and that shows, you know, extra consideration, just like doing a, you know, if you're doing a content site or, you know, something where that information might be useful to somebody not on the web, making a print style sheet ensures that you have, you know, some modicum of control over the way that output is printed. So yeah. you're not printing, you know, you're not wasting somebody's ink to print navigation that they're not going to use on paper. I mean, right. that, that sort of stuff. Yeah. You're not, you're not printing ads for them, which again, not really helpful
1: yeah no not not a not a great thing. There's actually a stack of of Chrome plugins and Firefox plugins and so forth like you could easily just incorporate this into your regular pattern of development just the you know contrast tools It, it doesn't seem like a lot that has to be done to at least put a dent in this problem
2: absolutely mm-hmm. and if if folks are really interested in getting more into the granular stuff um, in the uh, the edge developer tools in f twelve you can actually view the accessibility tree so you can see how elements are being exposed to assistive technology, so you can see that you know let's say for instance. Um, you've, you've got a a link that you're exposing as a button or something like that. You can verify that that is in fact being exposed as a button. Not that I would recommend making a link into a button, but (laughs) you know, if you're, if you're trying to, you know, improve an interface, but you can't do a whole lot about, you know, certain aspects of that interface, but you can add an aria attribute, you know, those sorts of things can, those tools can help you to to understand how that information is being exposed.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, you use the tool you want. Absolutely. We have not talked much about the Edge tools. I think Edge, edge has been uh, on the Edge for quite a while. Is uh-huh. that an Edge uh, case? Nice. <laughs> but, uh, it, you know, it's, it's good coherent stuff. There's a lot here. Yeah, there's a whole section on accessibility.
2: Yeah, it's actually, um, you know, I've, I've been at Microsoft for about a year and a half now, and I've, I've been really impressed with how focused the entire company has become about accessibility. It's, mm. it's, it's been really nice to see
1: yeah I, I don't know that it surfaces out in the world very often but every time I've had to interact with a product team and we're talking about you know going from feature complete to ship accessibility is a huge piece of that conversation and along with multilingual and cultural elements and so forth like this is the the company puts a lot of energy into making sure their products work all over the world with all for everyone with a wide variety of capabilities mm-hmm
2: it's all about increasing reach. I mean, yep. the, the more potential you have for uh, for people to sell
1: to, the better, right? I, yeah. I guess I guess that's true. Although you know, it, it, I don't know that the ROI is high here. It's expensive, and it is a, a minority of people. But uh, I'm I'm appreciative uh, that it's being done.
2: Yeah, I mean, I don't know that. It, <sighs> If you do it from the beginning, I don't know that it really is that much more expensive. Um, I mean, I, I remember anecdotal information from uh, a friend who knew what was going on with Google Maps back when that was first created. Mm-hmm. And they, they shared that when, when they built it, they didn't consider accessibility. And then when they went back to, to. Kind of bolt on accessibility, they said that it basically ended up taking them twice as long to integrate accessibility and cost cost a lot more than it would right. have if they had thought about it from the beginning. So wow. I think well,
1: it sounds like the same story for testing and security and just about everything else. Yeah, really. Yeah,
2: yeah, the more you think about this stuff, you know, the the cost of changing your mind goes up over time, right? Like that's <laughs> it's it's the reality. Yeah. Um, so I mean, I, I think the more that we focus on this stuff early, and the more that we kind of take care of the low hanging fruit, the the better our experiences are going to be. And, you know, yes, it's going to be better for the the world writ large. It's a, a, you know, it's the right thing to do. Yes. (laughs) Um, Mm. Yeah. But at the same time, it, it you know, from a, a business standpoint, you know, I, I brought up the the thing earlier about the, you know, making considerations for somebody who might be, might only have use of one of their arms, yeah. you know, t- 21 million people is a heck of a lot more than I think it was like somewhere between six and 8,000 that, that, you know, are amputated, have one, one uh, arm amputated. But
0: can you give me a concrete example of something that you can do that would help people use one hand? depending on what the interface is um
2: there you know somebody might be mousing with their non-dominant hand so having larger hit targets is really helpful um You know, somebody because you're you're not going to be as precise, and that actually has implications for people who might have both of their hands but are using a touch-based interface. Or somebody who is using, you know, the the 10 foot interface, interacting via Connect or a remote or something like that, where you know you're not as as accurate with you know a a distance pointer. Um, and it's also more tiring to to interact with, you know, a a wand type interface. I don't know if either of you have ever tried to use like opera. On the Wii or something like that, but you know, the the more we take into to consideration um, alternate ways of experiencing our content, the more uh, broadly available, accessible,
0: and um, useful our our products become for people. And here's a good tip: always have a keyboard shortcut. Always have a key stroke that you can use. The browser does a pretty good job of that, but if you are uh, requiring people to click inside a picture. And that's the only way that they can interact with your site. Mm.
2: Yeah, I mean, at least make it key- keyboard focusable, um, right. which you can do, can do by juggling tab index. Um, tab index of zero will make any element in HTML focusable via the keyboard. So if you if you have some you know some JavaScript that you're triggering when somebody clicks on on something with a mouse, having a tab index of zero on it, and also capturing. Um, capturing a key press on there um will ensure that that you create that parody of experience
0: yeah well aaron thank you so much it's been great talking to you and we learned a lot yeah thanks for having me you bet and we'll see you next time on DotNet rocks